Well, today we begin a new series, a five-week series called Our Jerusalem. It's the first five chapters of Acts, and we're just going to go a chapter at a time each week, go through and learn what it is the early church did as a witness to their community, to their Jerusalem. That, that title comes from verse 8 in, in chapter 1, Acts 1, 8, where it talks about them being sent as witnesses to Jerusalem first. In fact, they were told to wait until the Spirit empowered them for that work. So we'll get into that in a little bit here. During this series, I want to encourage you just to read through Acts 1 to 5 uh, once a week as a good practice for staying connected, staying engaged with what we'll be talking about from Sunday to Sunday. So there's no like, hey, I wonder what we're studying next Sunday. Well, let's see. This is the third week. Oh, Acts 3. You can keep up with what we're reading. You can be focused on the passage at hand and, and continue to engage with the word from week to week so that this, this hour here on Sunday isn't it. So that this isn't all we do and this isn't your only Bible content for Acts. I've got to tell you, this series is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. This Acts series, this kind of evangelistic outreach, connect people to Jesus kind of series is the kind of stuff that, that keeps me up at night. I love this stuff. I love to read about how the early church heard the truth from Christ and went out in passion and it defined everything about them. That's an encouragement to me. That, that gets my, my blood going. And so I, I'm looking forward to this. I could talk about and scheme about these kinds of things with other believers, about, about reaching people so that they will know Christ all day long, until I'm blue in the face. So um, I'll try to keep it at 35 minutes. Here's the reason why, for me, this is something that gets me going. God didn't provide us with his Son, with salvation, with grace, with abundant resources for us to sit around and just enjoy them for ourselves. God gave us these gifts for a very specific purpose and reason. God gave us these gifts to highlight His glory by giving them to others. God gave us everything we call ours for the purpose of highlighting His glory by giving it away to others. It is when our comfort and our enjoyment displace His glory in that, when it gets upside down, things get out of whack, that's a problem, and that's called hoarding the gospel. And a lot of us are kind of used to that, aren't we? We like what it feels like to keep Jesus for me. We like the place that creates for us. But it's a selfish and an immature way to live and to think about all the resources that ultimately have their beginning and their end in God. Rather than that, he calls us, he is still calling us to be witnesses to his world. Witnesses of the work of God in our lives. We talk about the three C's. In three C life terms, it means what we do here is we celebrate God, who he is and his work in our lives. Learning to name through the word and our worship together how it is that God has made himself known to us. That's celebrate God, number one. Number two, we come here to celebrate and to cultivate growth. 
to make in our lives a place where relationship with one another horizontally and God vertically will help us grow. We worship and we grow for the purpose of communicating the gospel. It's a linear process that doesn't stop. It keeps happening. We are called to communicate the gospel as witnesses to our community. So if we don't get past steps one and two, if we just stay at celebrate God, cultivate growth, and we don't get to communicate the gospel, then who cares about how fun it is to be here? If, if we don't get to communicating the gospel with our lives, as he so clearly called us to do, then who cares how great the worship is, how fantastic the preaching feels, how good it feels to be with other believers, how great my class was, how wonderful the youth group is. Who cares? I'm passionate about this because if, if our gatherings, if this feeding time and this equipping time doesn't result in leaving here with a purpose and mission for your life, if it doesn't result in lost people coming to know and love Jesus, then somehow, somewhere along the way, we are hoarding the gospel for ourselves. That was never the intent of the mission in the first place. And I want to prove it. <laughs> I want to prove it. I don't know of anybody who claims Christ as Lord who would deny the truth that our lives are about the calling of making known God's glory. Nobody's going to argue with that. <laughs> Nobody's going to say, you know what, really, I just, I think he made this to be about me. Nobody's going to say that. We all agree that he's created us to not just worship him and to spend time in fellowship with one another and grow, but also to communicate. Nobody's going to deny that. Nobody who claims Christ as Lord will argue with that point. But if we all agree that our lives are to be used for the cause of extending the kingdom of God, if we all agree on that, then why are more than 80% of churches in our country plateaued or declining? Something doesn't make sense. There's a, there's a disconnect created to make known the glory of God, use our resources for him. And yet we live in a country where 80% of churches, bodies of believers gathered for the purpose of communicating the gospel ultimately, 80% of them plateaued and declining. When you factor in population growth in the United States of America, 94% of bodies of believers are on the downward trend. If we all agree that our lives to be used for extending the kingdom of God, then why in one year does the average church in America, the average conservative evangelical Bible-believing church like us, how is it that the average church in America has one baptism per 50 members? How does that work? 60 years ago, it was even better. It was one baptism per 19. We're losing ground. In 2011... Half of all churches in the U.S. did not add one new member through conversion. And, and if, if you still want to just have your head in the sand, go ahead and do that. Listen to this. 195 million people in America are unchristian, unchurched. That makes us the third largest unchurched, non-Christian nation on the planet. Behind China and India. The problem is not a lack of resources. We have more training and technology and time than any moment in all of history. 
the church in America somehow is not effectively reaching out to its community. And as I read through the account of the early church in Acts, I wonder if these first followers of Christ would, would, would look at our stuff, our infrastructure, our Christian colleges, our training, our expertise, our conferences. We've got options coming out our ears for knowing more, learning more, doing it better, having resources. They would look at that infrastructure and they would say, how is it absolutely possible? How is it possible? But the church in America is headed this direction in its effectiveness, in outreach. I think they have one ingredient found here in Acts 1 in great measure that is really just, it's, it's easy. It's not hard, it's easy. They have one ingredient in great measure that we do not give ourselves to. And it's simply this. The simple power of a witness. The simple power of a testimony to the work of God in one's life. This word witness is going to be used throughout all of Acts, and we'll talk about it for the next five weeks, and we'll talk about it today. But I just want to, for those of you who are taking notes, let you know that a witness is simply this, an individual. If you're taking notes, an individual who, being present, personally sees or perceives a thing. The key thing there is seeing it. You see it. You're a witness. I I like this next description. The dictionary calls a witness a beholder. A witness is a beholder. I like that. Are you a beholder? Are you a beholder of the work of God? Have you personally seen his work in the world and in your life? Then you're a witness. If you have eyes open through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can see those things. Name them. You know them in your life and in somebody else's life. That makes you a witness. Check. You've got that one. You're a witness. (laughs) But if you keep that witness to yourself, the power of God through the Spirit communicating the message can happen through you. It's going to happen through somebody. The big idea today here is that empowered by the Holy Spirit, when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, God awakens the gospel message when we witness. Our witness is what awakens the inherent value and power of the message of the gospel. Without a witness, there's no power in it. The Holy Spirit takes that witness and makes it work. That's the encouragement of all this. Yes, we can be down about how ineffective we've been. But the encouragement of Acts 1 is that all it takes is someone to say it and to do it. God will use it. We'll talk more about that later on. So let's let's follow the flow of the text here in Acts 1. There are basically just two points today uh, that, that tell about how these early disciples were witnesses of the Lord's message first. I'm sorry, the witnesses of the Lord's life first, and then witnesses of his message. That's the, the two points for today, and we'll look at that here in just a second. Witnesses of the Lord's life starts in verse 1 here. Just the first few verses, let's read it together here in Acts 1 and point out things along the way. It says this, in the first book, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom 
of God. Jump back to verse 1 there. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Word and deed comes from this passage, to do and to to teach. It's something you do. It's something you say. Word and deed. This isn't the only place it's in Scripture, but that's part of how our third C got the, the idea of communicating the gospel in word and in deed. It's all over the New Testament. Word and deed. Do and say. Two ways we witness. Everybody here can do. Everybody here can say. That's a witness. So, so circle if you're a circler there. Jesus began in verse 1 there. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There's a ton going on here. So Acts is written by Luke, okay? And it's the second volume of his two-volume series, Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts were, were written to be the same sort of continuous story, Luke being the gospel, the telling of all that Jesus began. It says it right there, all that he began to do and teach. He'll piggyback off of that uh, in a sort of literary sense and say, now remember that, now I'm going I'm to take off from there and tell you about what happens after that. That's where Acts starts off. And it's not just something he does as sort of a literary device to say, hey, don't, don't forget that. He's saying, this is how it functions in your life. He's redefining, in a sense, your purpose. He's redefining why we live. He's saying, remember what Jesus began to do and teach? Now it's your turn. Acts is saying, remember all those things that he did? Now it's your turn. In other words, you are fundamentally defined by your new existence as the continuation of Jesus. Not like, I feel a responsibility to witness for Jesus. Not like, I know that when I'm, when I'm prepared enough, when I've got enough answers, I know that like when I'm seminary trained, then I can go. Like, like I'm going to feel a responsibility to do it. That's not even strong enough. Luke is saying, you equal Jesus' presence in the world now through the Holy Spirit. Can't miss that part. Okay. He's writing this to a man named Theophilus. Verse 1, Theophilus just means lover of God. Uh, it was probably a wealthy patron to whom he wrote the letter. Um, might have been an official or a political person. Um, but uh, he's writing here to Theophilus, and he's saying, remember all those things that Jesus did, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Remember those? Well, here comes more. Jesus, in fact, himself picked up on this. This isn't something Luke is just making up, and I'm not making it up. John 14 says this. John 14:12. this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Can you think about that? That's crazy. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Jesus talking. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. He does go to the Father. The ascension happens here in Acts 1.9. We'll see it later on. So it says here in the Gospel of Luke, he told of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Verse 2, until the day when he, that is Jesus, was taken up. That refers to the ascension there in verse 9 we just talked about. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, here come the convincing proofs here. He says this. The convincing proofs, verse 3. He presented himself alive. As in, like, literally alive. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, 
Now, Luke is a careful writer. Uh, many think that he is one of the, the best uh, historians of antiquity for the care he takes to corroborate, to sort of give evidence for what happened. Uh, many call him a historian of the first rank. And so here in Acts, he's wanting to make clear to the reader, he's being careful to show us that the first disciples were actual witnesses of an actual person named Jesus who actually appeared to them after his suffering, it says. In other words, after his death and resurrection, after this guy was dead and raised, he showed up. After his suffering, verse 3, Luke says, Jesus presented himself alive. The word presented there makes it sound like he did it with, with intent, like it was an intentional thing. I sort of imagine Jesus holding out his scars uh, for Thomas and saying, hey, I, I'm presenting myself to you. See, see, check these out. I'm not just a figment of you. Put it in there. Can you imagine? Put it in there. Check it out. Yourself. Be a witness, Thomas. And Thomas was. Read the story about what happens to Thomas. He was a witness. I don't know about you, but it, it, it's easy to, you know, sort of be upset with Thomas as if he was being a jerk. I, I'd be right in line. I might be the dad. I want to see. I want to see Jesus because I'm going to base my life on this. So show me. I want to be a witness who knows it, who's seen it, who's touched it, who's lived it. That's what powerful witness looks like. And that's why these disciples from this 40 days experience would go off to do amazing things. Just do a little bit of search online this week. What the disciples did after Pentecost. It's awesome. They took it seriously because they were witnesses. They saw it. They were witnesses. They were convincing proofs. It keeps going there. It says, uh, Jesus presented himself alive, this is verse 3, after his suffering by many proofs, and it was for 40 days while he taught them about the kingdom. Ghosts don't stick around for 40 days. People do. So in verses 1 to 3 there, we see the witnesses of the Lord's life the disciples were here because of the convincing proof that was given to them. Their power to witness came from having been with Christ, from having seen the presence of Christ with them, among them. Verses 45, he gives a command for power. And this is what gave the momentum to the mission. They could have gone out by their own power, but that would have been ineffective. We'll see this in just a second. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, while staying with them, he, that's Jesus, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He was staying with them before he ascended, and he ordered them, he commanded them. He said, this is not an option. Make sure you wait here. Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait. Don't get too far ahead, he says. Don't jump into ministry that is done by your own power. You know, we can all do that. Jump into ministry on our own power. Not, not a spirit-led ministry. Results in burnout, results in feelings of failure, results in feeling like my, my, my life is not fitting up with God's mission. Maybe that's because the Spirit's not why you're doing what you're doing. Maybe it's because the, the cause of Christ is not what's motivating what you are doing. The Spirit-empowered mission fulfills. So he says to wait for the promise of the Father there. That word of and of the Father uh, should probably be from, the promise from the Father. 
which he said, you heard from me. In other words, you heard this from me. Uh, I like that phrase there. Circle that if you're a circler, an underliner. You heard from me. This is just a picture of discipleship. We talk about our, our church's mission, the three C's, living the three C life. Those are just ways of talking about discipleship. I like to talk about making disciple makers. We don't just want somebody to come through our process and learn to celebrate God, cultivate growth, communicate the gospel, as if, as if they do that and they're happy and that's, they're, they're done. We want that person to make sure that process replicates in the lives of others. That's someone who makes disciples. So we want to be people who make disciple makers. This isn't something I've made up. It's straight out of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It's a great verse uh, to memorize. Uh, what you heard from me. It's that same phrase used here. What you have heard from me. This is Paul speaking. In the presence of many witnesses. In trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Think about that. What you have heard from me. That's two generations. What you heard from me. In the presence of many witnesses, there's that word again, people who attest, who testify to the truth of God. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, there's the third generation, who will be able to teach others also. This is discipleship. In fact, you sitting here listening to the word of God is because you've been discipled. Our presence here in worship is evidence that somebody else cared enough to be a witness. You sit here worshiping Jesus Christ because he told his disciples who told others, who told others, who told others for thousands of years until we sit here today. Discipleship works because that's how God told us it was going to work. Someone before you had the boldness to say, I can tell you about how God works in my life. I can be a witness. That's all it takes, just a little bit of boldness. Wraps up here in verse 5. He said, you heard this from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We'll unpack the meaning of this a little more next week. Uh, But for now, it doesn't mean anything other than this. The Lord, by the Holy Spirit, adds to your witness to bring power and effectiveness. Think about that. The Lord takes our feeble, frail, not educated enough, not smart enough, don't have all the answers kind of uh, witness. <laughs> because we're, we're broken, frail people, we don't have it all together. We know what it's like to be broken. And so our witness, even as broken people, is used, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make it work. That's how you know God's in it. Because none of us is good enough or smart enough or perfect enough or enough of an example or model for anybody to say, oh, that's the existence of God right there. (laughs) Yeah. We'll come back to this in Acts 2 next week when we talk about tongues that looked like fire. Verses 6 to 8 describes here how the early uh, disciples were witnesses of the Lord's message. They saw his life. They, they were with him. They were discipled by Jesus himself. How awesome would that be, by the way? Uh, and, but but they, were, they were witnesses, not just to his life, but to his message. To his message. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
the message of the kingdom is, is told to us here. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons what the Father has fixed by his own authority. We don't have time to get into all of this, but if you look through the life group questions, you'll help understand why they asked this question. It's easy for us sometimes to read what the disciples say and think, oh, come on. I mean, that's kind of a silly question, isn't it? Because we have the benefit of years of learning and, and the rest of Scripture that they didn't have yet. Um, but, but go ahead and study those questions, and you'll, you'll see why it is that this isn't, a, this isn't a dumb question. This isn't a dumb question. They knew that the Holy Spirit would be made known in power when the kingdom of God came. And so they thought, well, Jesus has come back. I mean, he was dead, he was raised to life, and he's back. So, so does that mean the Holy Spirit's going to come with power and the kingdom of God's going to be here? Well, actually, yeah, it did mean that, but, but not in the way that they thought. So go ahead and study that later on. Uh, the kingdom of God here is simply a phrase that talks about the rule and the reign of God. We think of the kingdom of God sort of uh, as the ways that... Uh, that in earthly power things happen, as if that's a kingdom. But uh, the rule and the reign of God is a spiritually directed rule and reign. And I want to I show you a little definition that I found that uh, just helps unpack this phrase, kingdom of God, that's in uh, the preceding verse and in this verse here when it talks about the kingdom. Uh, it says this, The kingdom of God is not an earthly political or military kingdom, but the present spiritually directed reign of God the present spiritually directed rule and reign of God. Think about that. Just that phrase will change how you do everything. The present spiritually directed rule and reign of God that gradually transforms individual lives and entire cultures through the power of the Holy Spirit. The message for the world is described to us in verse 8. It's not a message that's for us only. It begins with us and it goes to the world just like the first disciples. Verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Now don't miss this, because they had just asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you do this now, Jesus? Because he came back and they thought, well, the time has come. Jesus is going to do this. And so they say, will you do this now, Jesus? And he says... Not, not yet. First, he says, you take over. Think about that. Are you going to come and do this now? And then he says, you, you will receive power. Not like some of you. Not like those of you who are professional missionaries. Not those who are paid clergy, not those who have learned enough, who are, who are good enough, whose personal testimony is like awesome and makes people cry. No, 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 no. It's y'all. Y'all will receive power. I think that's what it says in the Greek, I guess. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's a call for all believers, all believers, to carry the message to all the world. 
Not just to their homeland, but to Judea and Samaria. Where the pagans live. Where the goyim, the dirty non-Jews that I was raised to detest, live. That's the message of the kingdom for the world. It's a message that is to be carried by all who love and claim Christ as Lord. A message spoken from all believers for all the world. And the great thing about this is that witness is so simple. Just say it and do it. What has God done in your life? Can you answer that question? If you can answer that question, you can be an effective witness. Simple. The Lord will take your simple witness, your simple testimony of this is how God's worked in my life. Let me tell you how. Let me show you how. That's the encouragement of Acts 1. It just plain requires communicating the gospel. The Lord will take care of whether or not people respond. It's something that that requires no degree, no amount of goodness that you can achieve to make it happen. We will all miserably fail in the prepare to do this right category. It's pretty simple, and I want to close by telling you an illustration of how simple it really is. There was a Chinese farmer who was having vision problems and, and, and didn't know why, couldn't, couldn't fix it. So this Chinese farmer uh, had heard about this missionary doctor who was said to be able to fix vision problems. So the missionary doctor removed what turned out to be cataracts from the, the farmer's eyes. Removed the cataracts from the farmer's eyes, and the Chinese farmer went back off way into the interior of mainland China, went home a happy man. It wasn't but a few days later when this missionary doctor was, was sitting in the hut looking out the bamboo window when he, he saw this formerly blind Chinese farmer walking past his little bamboo window there holding the front end of a long rope. And he kept watching and he passed by and in a single line right behind the Chinese farmer were several blind Chinese men and women holding on to a rope wanting to hear how it is that they could have their vision fixed. They all knew, simply, the farmer had been blind, but now could see. And all he did was tell them. All he did was make them aware of the doctor who cured them. Now, that Chinese farmer cannot tell you anything about the inner workings of an eye or the physiology involved, how the operation took place, can't explain the techniques of the inner workings of all of those sorts of things. Can't tell you any of that. But he could witness. He could witness. You can witness. That was all that others needed to hear. And so they came to the doctor. This is the same exact way in our Christian lives. You don't, you don't need to be a trained theologian to be a witness. You don't need to have the right answers. You don't need to be a perfect example of flawless Christian living. Good luck with that one. All you need to be a witness is to tell everyone you can what Christ has done for you. You want to make your life a little less boring? Go out those doors and start telling people about Jesus. Things will well up inside of you that you cannot contain. It just might be the Holy Spirit saying, this is what it's like. This is what it's like to live life as I've intended it to be lived.
It is an awesome privilege to be entrusted with the simple task of telling the simple gospel story of God's work in our own lives to people who very desperately need to hear it. Witness is easy. Let's stop making it hard. Just witness to his work in your life and he will do the rest. Father in heaven, we are people who have a penchant for making things difficult. We want to have the answers. We want to know how to answer people perfectly. We want to be able to have the the right wise way to speak to everyone about the glories of God. Father, we just ask that you would use your spirit to add up to our simple declaration of your work in our lives and make that fruitful, Lord, so that this this awesome life you've called us to live would satisfy us, would be enough for us, and that we could pass that on to others who are desperately in need of knowing and loving you intimately, who are in desperate need of of claiming you as, as Christ and as Lord, people who are without you, uncovered, laid bare. Their sin has no Savior. And so, Father, we just ask that our simple witness to the truth of the cross, as we've seen it in our lives, would be used by your Spirit to reach our Jerusalem. In the name of Christ we pray.